Welcome to Sticks and Taps, where the conversation is hockey and the keg is always cold. The games will be on soon, so let's step up to the bar, grab a pint, get into it. Your host, Paul Cuthbert and Liam McGuire. Slant fellas, and don't forget to pay your tabs. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome into Sticks and Taps. Thank you there, Seamus, for the introduction, as always. How was your St. Paddy's? I know it was quiet, a little quieter than usual this year. But here we are, ladies and gentlemen, Sticks and Taps, live from the Go Hockey Media Studios here in New York and in the great white north in Ottawa, Canada. Paul Cuthbert here, and everyone please say hello to Liam McGuire. Liam, g'day to you, sir. How are you? How is she going, Polly? She's going the way she can. The only way she can. Quarantine these days. You're surviving. You're surviving. (laughs) New times, buddy. Yeah. What the heck? How you holding up up there, buddy? Oh, it sucks. The whole thing sucks. <laughs> no bars open. No St. Patrick's Day. Had to go over to a friend's place and have a few pints over there, you know, while we stayed, of course, arm's length apart. We are the only bar open, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but we have to, we don't know how to serve you. That's the only problem. <laughs> yeah, we'd serve ourselves. But, the uh, yeah, got. We, uh, we had a small little get get together there. Few of us, uh, obviously, taking heed of the precautions and uh, that everything's going on globally right now. And we uh, got a little group there together of good friends and some family for uh, ah, for about four hours or so, listening to some some good Irish music, uh, traditional Irish music, as provided mostly by the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. There you go, one of the best groups ever from from uh, from Ireland, and uh, played a few tunes and. Um, we had some grub uh, and uh, had a couple of drinks and shut her down pretty pretty early. As I said, a few hours, that was about it. But uh, otherwise, uh, been pretty quiet. Yeah, it is. I mean. Depressing. Well, yeah, I know. Of all days. One day annually. Ugh. One day annually. You know, my God. But, uh, you know, when the bars had to shut down, when Ireland shut down, I mean, I'm sure you saw the video from the Temple Bar area and everything. There was just like a couple of people walking around. That would normally be a zoo. What are you going to do? These are... Uh, these are unusual times, to say the least, certainly in our lifetime. I don't know if some people were saying it must have maybe been a little bit similar to this in terms of just externally living what it was like out during the during the wars, you know, the Second World War, maybe the First World War. But you weren't dealing with, with potential transferable viruses and illness. You just had to take normal precautions so, you know, that the, the axis of evil wasn't aware of your existence or whatever. But uh, it was. Uh, this is a different time, eh, buddy? Yeah, no, it's uh, the invisible enemy. So there's nothing you can do but uh, stay local, stay yep. close. I had about uh, I don't know, about seven or eight St. Patty's acoustic shows all shut down, and uh, I work with, like I said, I work at uh, Patty's Loft here in Massapequa, New York, uh, one of the finest uh, authentic Irish pubs here on Long Island, and um, you know we're a bit of a family over there, so it was kind of. Weird not seeing them and not singing a few songs and everything else. But like I said, it's across the board here. Everybody's uh, affected in their own way, no matter what kind of way of life you have. So it's, it is surreal. Yeah. So, I mean, for me and you, obviously, you know, you're in the crowd business. I'm in the crowd business. And a lot of us uh, uh, in that industry right now, it's just weird and just, uh, you know, you, you make the adjustments. Like I said, we're all hanging home with the families and what we can do. We had a few people yeah. over here. Just the immediate family was over. And I uh, had a bit of corned beef and cabbage, same thing and stuff. And uh, I was uh, mentioning to you earlier, I had the Clancy Brothers on. They had a 1986 reunion show that I found on um, 
on YouTube, and I'm sitting there yeah. and, and watching the four of them in those tight Irish white cotton sweaters. I love those sweaters. <laughs> Walking out onto the stage. And I, you know, I, I have to play in a T-shirt. I can't. Like, anything more than a T-shirt, I'm, I can't move. And I was just I know, cringing. Yeah. <laughs> I was cringing at yeah. the four of them. Where I know, you know, they have to be they're a wearing sheeps on their back, Liam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Irish wool, Irish oh. wool, guaranteed. It's, uh, they're, they're such a, I had one of those for years. It's just, I wore it so often, I kind of wore out the form of it. But uh, we've got a great store here in Ottawa. It's called the Irish and Scottish store. I, I must, uh, I must pick myself up another one. But geez, uh, you're right. As I, I get on stage too, but I don't, I don't do what you do. But, but I am up on stage, and and I do move around. And it, it, uh, I know when I'm in a suit, how uncomfortable it can be after 30, 40 minutes. I can't imagine for an hour and a half of uh, of singing, you know. And but, a few uh, but in that, you. that was there. Well, yeah, <laughs> and a belly full of pints. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you got to stay hydrated. <laughs> saying, you know, I was, we were joking before too. I'd say one of the because that was a reunion tour and they'd broken up sixteen years prior, right? I'd have to say yeah. you'd go a little bit of ma- a little bit mad, and you might get a little angry at the fellas that you're hanging out with. We love the Irish tunes, but I'd have to say if you were singing them every week, every night, and and most of the most of the uh, the storylines and most of the songs, someone's either died. Put in jail, is deathly yeah. ill, yeah. not yeah. coming back, or 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 you probably lose your mind and, and maybe want a bit of a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it makes sense. You know, I think people forget. Well, who would know unless you really know the music? You wouldn't know that they they had been together. They were together for well over you know probably twelve, thirteen years or whatever. By the time they they had that, you know, when they kind of decided to go their own ways and do their own thing, and and Patty and Tommy were in the you know. Uh, Tommy was an actor. I mean, he he had he had he was a uh, um, he performed on stage. Tommy Make or excuse me, Tommy Clancy, not Tommy Makeham, mm-hmm. but they all came from an entertaining background. Like the Makeham family was renowned for for their entertainment, and of course the Clancy brothers grew up with it in their family. And and Tommy got into acting, and they all they always sang because the whole family sang, so they picked that up naturally. And and. Uh, I was right there at the homestead, man. I think I told you that, and in, uh, in Carrick and Shore, in in County Tipperary, that little cobble street, it could it you you could barely get one vehicle down that road, Polly. Mm-hmm. And and when when we parked there, it was my wife and I were on our honeymoon in 1994, and I'd, I'd drive around the building because I couldn't park on the street because you could you would barely barely be able to walk by the car, much less drive by it. So I had to find, I had to drive a few hundred yards away, find a place where I could pull over so vehicles could still get by and then walk back because the family runs an insurance business now. And wow. I mean, there's still some of them singing, obviously, offspring and grandchildren and things of that nature. They've kept the tradition going, but, uh, but yeah, there you have it. So uh, we'll go out with one of their classics today, I think, a little later, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And uh, we'll be doing more of this as we go forward here and with the nods to the uh, our Irish heritage and the music and stuff. So, uh, you know, we've got some good things, me and you have been talking about it. So we're, we're looking forward to continuing on here at Sticks and Taps. And you have no excuses out there now. You can't go anywhere. 
<laughs> you better listen. That's right. <laughs> Give us a listen. <laughs> All right, buddy. Right. Uh, sports in general is shut down. We are also a hockey show, and uh, you are my hockey sensei, my Obi-Wan. And, uh, you know, obviously we don't have any games. The league itself is trying to find ways to kind of keep uh, – you know, I, I think everybody's just trying to find, you know, everybody's looking at old highlights. Uh, the NHL just rolled out. They're going to be uh, playing, you know, a lot of repeat games this year, and uh, they're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. They just re- uh, uh, released a statement that the NHL is going to start, uh, you know, showing some classics, and they're going to NHL Network and, uh, you know, up there in Sportsnet and everything else. So uh, they're really reaching into the archives, and, and, you know, Liam, I mean, that's that's your thing, man. You're, you're the NHL historian, and it's 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 kind of surreal now where the league is actually in a in a shutdown here, and there's no live action. There's nothing new to talk about, so we've got to, you know, kind of reminisce and go back here a little bit. So that's what me and you are going to do here going forward, and I, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to, to hang out with you because there's nobody better who can do it. So what do you say, buddy? What do you, what do you want to talk about on today's show? Um, you know, with with you know, in regards to something that uh, the fans you know can kind of tune in here today and, and and get a listen to and think about something else other than you know when's the league going to come back? Because we have no idea. No, I know, I know, we don't, and and so just pure speculation there. And and uh, if we do end up with some hockey in the summer or whatever, then so be it. I know I'll be watching. I'm pretty sure you will too. So we'll see what happens there, but. You know, I was thinking, Paulie, that we talk about today is that something that will probably, one of the outcomes of all of this at the end of the day, I'm thinking, is that they're probably going to tell the players no more handshakes at wow. the conclusion of series. They'll probably eliminate it uh, in minor hockey, amateur hockey, I get is my guess. And uh, I'm guessing that they'll probably tell the players not to do it either. What do you think? That's, you know what, I... You know, me, you mean you were talking about bringing this up, right? And I didn't even think it was for that reason. I mean, you just—I'm totally blown away right now because I didn't even realize that 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 might be something that has to be instilled as a protocol. Well, I just—it was on my mind, so that's why I thought today I'd uh, take uh, take the listeners down a little bit down um, historical backdrop, as to my knowledge, anyway, from a very unique moment in my life years ago that uh, I believe lends credence to where the entire tradition started. And it kind of has a link through to today, too, on a couple of fronts. So if you come with me, Polly, back in time, as a young man, I'm 21 years of age, 1980, and I was working three jobs. I had uh, split with my first foray at, uh, at college here at Algonquin College, where, where the professors and I had a failure to communicate so I had to take a, a, a leave of absence. <laughs> well said, man. Well said. <laughs> right from nice cool way to put Luke, it. Paul Newman, nineteen sixty-three. One of the greatest lines of all time. So, <laughs> so uh, one of the jobs I was working um, was in and around the village of Manitick. They were all in around the village of Manitick. I, I sharpened skates at Four Seasons Sports, where I worked with uh, with Darren Pang's father, Jerry Pang. I think most people in hockey are familiar with Darren Pang and the great job he does broadcasting yep. and a former goalie in the NHL and a Memorial Cup winner. I worked with and for his father at a store called Four Seasons Sports. I drove the Zamboni at the Manatic Arena, where it's another story for another time, but I <laughs> had to drive it down to the gas station one time and the police pulled me over on the way back because they thought I was stealing it, which of course I was not. <laughs> and I then took a job working for 
basically the man who was regarded as Mr. Manatic, Vince Daly, the late Vince Daly, who all amateur sports in Manatic ran through. If you lived in the 692 and you played an amateur sport, at some point or another, you're going to cross paths with Vince Daly. And he hired me to work at the senior home, the Carlton Lodge, the original one, on what was then Highway 16, now called Prince of Wales Road or Drive or whatever. And uh, we had to work maintenance. Me and a buddy of mine, Pete Bisdy, good hockey player. And uh, we were working maintenance. And I was there for six or seven weeks doing some painting and some little bit of my, you know, minor construction work around the place. And we are in at lunch. They had a pool table. And I was in shooting some stick at lunchtime and, you know, shooting the breeze with the, with the old fellas that were in there. And this one old lad shuffles up to me. As I'm shooting stick one one fine afternoon in 1980, summer afternoon, and he says, "The people around here say you know a lot about hockey," <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I know, I know quite a bit, sir." And he says, "Well, I got an old scrapbook in my room. I was wondering if you'd be interested in seeing it." I said, "Yeah, I'd love to, absolutely." And he said, "Come on back," and he turned around and he started shuffling away, and I shuffled in behind him, and a few minutes later, we finally got to his room. And I took a look at the name very quickly as we walked in. And the last name was Lamb, okay? L-A-M-B. All right, buddy? Yep. And I walk in. And he, he says, uh, first thing he does is he kneels down by his bed. He pulls up his bed cover. And he pulls out a case of beer. And he says, <laughs> would, you like, would you like a pint? And I says, holy cow, you got beer in your room. And he says, yeah, they only allow us two a day here. So I always make sure I get my own smuggled in. Good stuff. <laughs> I said, absolutely. I'd love a pint. So he brings out no no twist offs in those days. No so way. he says, You're gonna have to you're gonna have to help me open it. So I grab a look around, find something in his room, and snap a couple caps and sit down on the bed with him. And he pulls out this old, dusty, withered scrapbook that looks like it's just a billion years old. And he starts opening up the pages. Now the first few things are all pictures and, and, and newspaper articles from from the family, I guess, you know, growing up and whatnot. And, and he's just he's pointing out some things here and there and everything else. Not much to it. And then we get into a little bit more where I start looking at some faces and I'm going, hey, I these these look I recognize these guys. This is this is 1920s NHL. And and uh, I look at him and I said, your last name is Lamb, right, sir? And and he said, yeah. And I, I saw that on the door walking in. I said, now, there was a Joe Lamb that played in the NHL. He was the third player ever to wear number 99, and he led the NHL in penalty minutes one year. Wow. And he looked at me, and he said, that was my brother. I said, wow, my God, it's incredible. That's, uh, I know he played in the uh, 1920s, 1930s. He played for like six, seven teams. And he said, yeah, my God, you do know your stuff. So, so we, uh, we have a conversation. And, and uh, we, we keep flipping the pages. Get about halfway through the scrapbook, Polly, and I'm looking at this old, yellow, stained photo. It's just, can't even describe how it looked. It was, would have been taken with the equipment of the day or whatever, I guess, way back. And he said, do you recognize these two men who are shaking hands here? And they're, they're, they're in the hockey equipment of the day, hockey image of the day. And I know it's, I know it's an image from early 1900s. I know that much. And I said, uh, I don't know who the gentleman on the right is, but I know for a fact the guy on the left is Art Ross because he looked the exact same almost to the day he died. And he said, well, the gentleman on the right is Frank Patrick. I said, okay, all right, okay. So what's going on here? And he says, 
He says, okay, you know your hockey, do you? And I said, yeah. He said, when was the first All-Star game? I said, oh, I, I know that, sir, because most people think it was the Ace Bailey game. It wasn't. It was a game played in 1917 uh, the, that actually pre predated the very, very start of the NHL where the funds were raised for the victims' families in Halifax for the, the ship that blew up on the harbor. It was during the First World War, yeah. and a ship blew up there, caused catastrophic damage and death and, and, and everything else. And there was an all-star game, he said. No, there was one nine years before that. I went, what? <laughs> he said, yep. January 2nd, 1908. This picture is from that game. And I said, okay, who's, who was the game for? And he said it was for a man named Hod Stewart who had died in a diving accident the summer before. Now, I didn't know this. I didn't know any of this. And he's telling me this. And then he says, you see that picture? And I said, yeah. He said, that's Art Ross and Frank Patrick shaking hands before the game. That's the start of the handshake tradition in hockey. And I said, oh, how, how's that? And he said, because the next year, or that, that later that year, they played together for the Montreal Victorias in the Stanley Cup Challenge. And in the challenge, when they shook hands that day, at the conclusion of that All-Star game, and by the way, there were six guys in that All-Star game that were later inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Okay. okay. So you're talking some pretty significant names in hockey history for anybody who's ever delved into the players who are in the Hall of Fame. Riley Hearn, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Cecil Blatchford, uh, Russell Johnson's in the Hall of Fame. Frank, of course, Art Ross. These guys, Percy Lesueur, these guys are were legends of the, of the game such as it was in the early 1900s. So because Frank and Art Ross shook hands at the start of the game, when the game ended, which the, uh, the Montreal Wanderers were the host team, and they played an all-star team of, of, uh, of the best players in the league, and the money went to the Stewart family. He was 27 years old, Paul. He had a diving accident. You know, he was working for his dad in the summer, and he went to a pit and dove in, didn't realize how shallow it was, oh. and he hit the jagged edges and, and broke his neck, and he died instantly, and he's 27 years old. Wow. And, and uh they later put him in the Hall of Fame as well, I believe, in 1945, the first year they inducted players. So Frank and Art Ross shake hands, and at the conclusion of the game, everybody shook hands. And when Frank and Art played together, the next playoff series, they brought the captains over prior to the game, and they shook hands. And when the series ended, because in those days, a lot of the, a lot of the series, a lot of the Stanley Cup was challenges, right? Yeah. Like you just challenged. You would play a two-game total goal or a best of three or in some cases even just a one-off. So they started doing it at the conclusion of the game or the two-game or the three-game, and they'd, they'd shake hands, and everybody started shaking hands. Now, there is documented proof starting around 1912, 1911, 1912, 1913, of players in lesser leagues or in some of the pro leagues that were springing up handshaking after series. There's, there's, you, can, you can go online and find that. But what you cannot find is any proof of it going back to the Hodge Stewart Memorial All-Star Game in Montreal, January 2nd, 1908. I saw a picture in 1980 sitting at that gentleman's bed and that's what he told me. His brother played in the NHL. I think there's validity across the board. 
And as far as I'm concerned, that's where the tradition started. Now, Art Ross went on to play right through uh, 1917-18 when he was with the Montreal Wanderers, who were one of the first teams in NHL history. When the NHL started in 1917, the Wanderers were one of the chartered five teams that played. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, or five teams that were chartered. The Quebec Bulldogs couldn't operate. They didn't have enough money. The others were the Ottawa Senators, the Toronto Arenas, and the Montreal Canadiens. The Wanderers played in the Westmount Arena, which hosted that All-Star game in 1908. Their arena burnt down after the second game. And as a result, they had to cease operations. They forfeited two games and have to cease operations. Art Ross retired. He later um, uh, got it, became a, an official, became a referee in the league. And then when a team called the Hamilton Tigers came into the NHL as an expansion team, they came over, the Quebec franchise transferred to Hamilton and became the Hamilton Tigers. He was their coach. And after they folded and that franchise transferred to New York, Polly, now we're getting into your neck of the woods, mm-hmm. and, and, and became the first team from New York to play in the NHL called the New York Americans, Art Ross was hired away by a new expansion team in the NHL and the first American expansion team in the NHL called the Boston Bruins. And the Bruins hired Art Ross as a general manager and a coach. He remained with the team until 1954. Crazy. And in that time, he brought in the puck. He designed what essentially is the puck we we, we used still really today called the Art, Art Ross, Ross puck. Yeah, Art Ross did. Then he then he took the net that had been that had been uh, the first net ever was designed by Foster Hewitt, the broadcaster's father. The second net was a goaltender designed and upgraded by Percy Lesueur, who I just mentioned, who was a goaltender in that All Star game in 1908. And the third net that lasted essentially until 1984 was designed and implemented by Art Ross. And the last thing that his legacy is on the game, Polly, of course, is the Art Ross Trophy. Yep. For the scoring leader in the NHL, which is awarded every season in the National Hockey League. And he donated the trophy in his name in 1947. And the first winner was Elmer Locke with the Montreal Canadiens in 1948. Prior to that, you won. They just gave you a, a, a generic award for being the scoring leader in the NHL. The Art Ross Trophy did not officially start until the 47-48 season. Frank Patrick, the other man in that handshake... That famous handshake in Westmount Arena in Montreal, January 2nd, 1908, was the brother of Lester Patrick. Mm-hmm. Lester and Frank essentially organized, started, organized, and ran every single solitary bit of hockey in Western Canada, west of Ontario, from about 1912 on. They built the first indoor arena with artificial ice. They were the first ones to put sweater numbers on uh, on on uh, uh, put numbers on sweaters. They were the first ones to put blue lines in uh, on an arena to break break the rink into into three zones. They did so many things that were innovative. They both won Stanley Cups as players. They both became coaches. They both became managers. And and uh, Frank went on to uh, to run the Boston Bruins for years. Lester ran the New York Rangers for years. Lester had two sons named Murray and Lynn, and Murray and Lynn both had sons that went into the National Hockey League, including Murray's son, one of his sons, Dick Patrick, and his son, 
Chris Patrick, who got their names on the Stanley Cup with the Washington Capitals two years ago. Crazy. So there are seven Patrick's names on the Stanley Cup. And Craig is in there, right? Craig is in that family, right? Craig as well. Yeah. Craig as well. You've got Lester, Frank, Lynn, Murray, who more commonly known as Muzz, Dick, and Chris. Seven, seven, uh, and Craig. Seven names that are on the Patrick names. So you could take that handshake from January 2nd, 08, and come right up to present day National Hockey League with the Art Ross Trophy and Dick Patrick and his son, who's the director of player personnel, by the way, with the Caps, and, and draw a line all the way through from 1908. And now the handshake, I think, is probably done in, uh, in NHL. I, I think when we do get hockey back that they'll probably tell the players, I'm thinking not to do it. I, I don't know. Who knows what the world's going to look like, but I think they probably will tell them that. Wow. What a, what a trip, man. Thanks for that <laughs> journey, man. I mean, it's basically the genesis of the league going all the way back uh, to those two guys. And it's incredible how the, um, you know, the, the, you know, cause you know, I'm about to open up a can of worms here. We go for another two hours, but um, let's stick on a handshake real quick. I mean, I guess when, and if this all comes back to normal, um, you know, what kind of green lights they're going to give everybody, uh, you know, as, as a hockey fan, obviously to, to not see that at the end of the game would be absolutely just bonkers. You know, what are they going to do? Do the, you know, the Carolina hurricanes, they're going to go out to the center of the ice and come up, you know, even just if they would just, Oh, please put, God. Yeah, no, 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 but let's, let's just, just to put their sticks up at the end of the game or something like that. But you know, the, um, the whole handshake thing, just in general, just to, to kind of sidestep and talk about it, uh, you know, as far as the hockey and the NHL and our love for the game and the way it stands out. I mean, obviously that's something that the NHL has, has stood out with being a big part of the sportsmanship. And we talk about the passion of the game. Me and you obviously talk about fighting in the game, um, you know, how it's played and everything else. And, and we've obviously been blessed to watch epic Stanley Cup playoff series uh, leading even prior to getting into the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup, I mean, it's, it's amazing how the gauge of the level of intensity, it's probably primarily it's jacked up in those first two rounds, and then obviously it gets a little even more intense, but not as uh, flagrant uh, or, um, you know, uh, guys being, you know, a little smarter as far as taking penalties and everything when you get, you know, into the, to the last round to, for the championship. But these guys basically go out of their way to, to, to destroy each other and then to see yeah. that at the end of the game, it's just a part of it. And it's like this, everybody exhales. And then everybody, you know, I know as a fan, and I, I could probably speak for all of us, we all wait. I remember getting angry in years past if a broadcast cut away from the handshake. Yeah, I know. Because you you wanted to see, you know, uh, you know Patrick Awah, and, uh, you know, no series with the, the Red Wings and everything. Chris yep. Draper, all those guys, Claude Lemieux. I mean, you think of some of the – I mean, this goes back and back and back, the 70s and the 80s and all these brutal bench-clearing brawl series back then. Yeah. And when it was all said and done, you know, that was the one thing. You'd Oh, let's see how this guy's going to shake his hand. How this And you'd see hugs and you'd see handshakes. And it was just an incredible total show of – just sportsmanship in class, and the one thing I'll throw on this too is Billy Smith. You know, from the Islanders, he used to never get on that handshake line. No, nope, never. We, we talked about it recently, and you know, when 
Butchie's name was going up for the Raptors and the Islanders and everything else playing the Rangers, and I was talking to you like, you know, we'd always kind of have to beat the uh, the Islanders, and we couldn't, you know, to advance back in the 80s and Herb Brooks teams. And the one series he did actually go out and shake somebody's hand, it was Glenn Hanlon in that game that you were talking about, which was just so epic. But it yeah. just goes to show you there's there's a personality in the game and a, and, a, and a top player and a Stanley Cup champion and the way Billy played the game, and he was brutal, and obviously the games against Gretzky and the, the stick swinging and all that other stuff. And, and that was like when he went and shook Grant, Glenn Hanlon's hand, you know, even as a young kid back then, we were all like, oh, my God, Billy Smith never does that. So it's got some great – there's great stories behind that. You know, Lucic, Lucic and the Canadians there, right, a few years yeah. back with the Bruins. 2014. I mean, we, yeah, yeah, I mean, so it is. Um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, he saves, man. He's going to beat the shit out of out of uh, Evelyn and uh, and Dale Weiss. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, Jerry Cheevers also uh, was very reluctant to shake hands. I, I think he may have been the first guy in NHL history to actually not partake, but I'm sure there were others. But his was kind of noteworthy because with the Bruins and Bobby Orr and everything. But you want to talk about a handshake and the and the impact of it? I mean, if if people refer to the Bobby Orr goal in 1970 as the greatest photo in hockey history, and, and most do, certainly by an NHL standard. It's, it's generally regarded as number one. If there's a number two by NHL standard, it would have to be Rocket Richard and Sugar Jim Henry shaking hands in 1952. That, that shot, that picture, and anybody listening who hasn't seen it, just go on Google, just, dial, just, uh, just do a search. Rocket Richard, Sugar Jim Henry, or, or Jim Henry, the photo will come right up. And if you haven't seen it, it is a must, must view. And it's classic. That was right after the conclusion of one of the most bitter series. And you can, Rocket's got blood streaming down his face. Sugar Jim Henry, of course, black eyes, no mask, bent over almost in deference. And, and uh, Rocket had scored the winner with about three minutes to go after being knocked out in the second period. Game seven semifinals against Boston. One of the most amazing moments in hockey history. Sadly, no video, but captured largely by that photo. And what are they doing? They're shaking hands. So pretty uh, pretty incredible stuff. And um, I, I, I just love the fact it was Art Ross and Frank Patrick. They essentially captained those two teams at that time all those years ago, Paulie. And with the, with the lineage of the Patricks and the connections through the trophy and history on both sides... Uh, right through to today's game. I, I think it's one of the greatest historical stories, and I thought it was appropriate one, you know, as we try and bide our time here and hope we do get some hockey in the not-too-distant future. I have obviously 100 stories, but uh, I thought that was a good one to start, you know, because of uh, the history and, and where, in fact, that um, could possibly could possibly be the end. They may tell the players not to do it. Who knows? Say it isn't so, Liam. Say yeah, I hope, so. uh, I'll say it's not so. <laughs> hey, the one thing, too, funny you bring this up, too, as well, is, I mean, just recently, in a, there's been a couple of um, amateur videos recently of, like, players on these handshake lines losing it. I mean, that was something that you, you never really saw, too, but I know there's a couple of clips recently, um, you know, you can Google yeah. that as well, too, and YouTube and everything, a couple of goalies just, you know, decking guys, you know? Punching guys in the line. Oh yeah, too. oh yeah. That kid and that kid was what about twelve or something or thirteen? He looked like right. <laughs> it's just and it's taboo. Hey, look, you, you, I, you know, I, I coached minor hockey for twelve years, and it be, it became the bane of my existence having these kids shake hands at at, at the end of some of these games. And you know, the I'll tell you something, Polly, because you're down there in in New York. I'm up here, 
Osgood, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And uh, when we traveled to the States to play in tournaments, they'd have the kids shake hands before the game. They did it before the game. And, and I thought we should have done it here. And heres I'll tell you why. Just my two cents on that. Okay. The generation that came along after my generation that played, I include my son, and he's sitting right here listening to this, but I include his, his age group in it. There were less, the, the kids, it's just the way they were raised. Just a lot of kids don't, didn't have the ability to go through the line with the dignity and the respect, despite the incredible pain and anger or disappointment of losing either a game or a series to knock you out of the playoffs or a tournament, key game or something. And we had numerous incidents. Like, when I say numerous, not 100 or anything, but we had, you know, probably had eight or 10 anyway. We had a couple kids that punched kids. And, we, you know, there was there was not like that goalie did in that video. I mean, that was a vicious <laughs> shot. <laughs> but, you know, that had to be born out of something. But, I mean, you just never would have seen that. Look at what you just said just five minutes ago. You could have the the, the biggest brawls, and, the, and look what Dino Cicerelli said after after they got beat by Colorado in nine in ninety six. He said, "I can't believe I had to shake Claude Lemieux's hand." Yeah, he was disgusted that he shook it, yeah. but he did it. And you know, well, we all know how that went the next year, and and uh, you know, McCarty and and uh, and and Oof. and Osgood boys, <laughs> things things kind of came full circle there for old Clody boy, but. Yeah. Um, but you that's know what? A, that's a series uh, we should talk about, buddy. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's you know maybe uh, we'll do a show on rivalries uh, sometime because yeah, I'll absolutely. tell you it's, it's pretty tough to beat Game Six Quebec. You know the, the Easter Easter Monday or Easter yep. uh, Sunday Quebec, whatever it was, uh, nineteen eighty four. Uh, I mean, back to back bench clears have only happened by my count three times in NHL history. And, and, uh, and that was one of the times. And, and I mean, you had brother on brother there at one point it was, but I mean, Detroit and New York for a couple of years, certainly don't take a backseat to anybody and battle of Alberta and the battle of New York. So you've got, and then you got to get historical. Now I remember when I interviewed Rocket Richard in 1989 and I said, uh, I was talking about those rivalry with Detroit and Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay. He stopped me right away. I'll never forget it. I was kind of sitting, I was leaned over kind of talking to him, my hands on my knees. I was about two feet from him talking to him about Gordie Howe playing against Gordie Howe and everything. And he, and he stopped me right in my tracks. And he said, no, 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 not even close wow. to our games against Toronto. Not even close, not even close. And I, I, I mean, that was coming from the man himself. It's yep. pretty hard to, you know, to go back and say, okay, I know you had a rivalry with Detroit, but, but the rivalry with Detroit and fueled with Gordie, you know, because they were rivals, because they were they were vying for the scoring title. You know, mostly for goals. Gordy was a way better hockey player than the Rocket, but but the rivalry with Toronto, being the two Canadian teams in the original six, was vicious, 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 and and uh, that's what he was alluding to. And you know, uh, um, I got the trail of the Stanley Cup. That's probably the three greatest historical books ever written on the sport of hockey, primarily the NHL. Uh, by Charles Coleman. There's three versions, three books. I've got them all. I've read them all. Now there are there are a few errors, but but there's there there's got to be literally literally probably over a hundred thousand bits of information in those three books. Uh, details, actual written details of games from from uh, 1893 to 1967. There is no better uh, publication that exists, and. 
I went back and started reading a bunch of the 1950s games from the Canadians and the Leafs, <laughs> especially one I came across, which at that time had set a record for penalty minutes. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, I get where the Rockets coming from now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's probably one of the highlights of my life was talking to him in November of 89 at the uh, the bar. I was a part owner of called the Original Six and I had Rocket Richard, Gordy Howe, Gump Worsley, and Eddie Shack all oh, in man. the bar night. Yeah. Oh, we got to talk about that one of these days. That's just yeah. incredible. And, you know, back British. then, man, the, you, know, the, you, you, you know, we talk about this, and we'll, we'll put a, a, a bow on this episode here in a couple minutes. But, yeah. You know, the, the how the league has changed, how the, you know, back then, you know, as far as officiating, uh, the rules, uh, you know, getting away with this, getting away with that, and just the – you know, it's 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 more of a. I mean, they're so protected today. I mean, it's still the great game. It's still speed. It's still talent. Oh yeah, it's still oh, yeah. skill. But man, I mean, you know, if if you're a if you're a quote unquote soft guy, uh, you can kind of make it through the league these days. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, not, you not back then. Yeah, no way. You, I mean, no. all those guys and all those years uh, that you talk about and we reminisce about too. I mean, those were just, you know. Those were players, man. And they weren't making yeah. a lot of money either, too. No. No. You know something? And, and now they traveling well, in private can... jets, you know? They no. weren't coach, you know? We can finish on this if you want because sure. I'll circle right back to, uh, to uh, the days of Art Ross and Frank Patrick as players. And they both, of course, went on to become renowned executives in the National Hockey League. And Art Ross was one of the highest paid players in his day. Like he was playing those seasons that that he played in last, they were twelve games. Okay, that's how long their their seasons were twelve games, and he was making like twenty three, twenty four hundred bucks for twelve games in nineteen ten, nineteen twelve. Like it, it's crazy, crazy the money he was getting. Like he was that highly sought after, and and um, you know, I mean, he went on obviously to negotiate tons of contracts, you know, for the Bruins, but but he was. He was ahead of his. He was ahead of his time. Like some of these guys, just were they were ahead of their time, and that's why they they were successful later on. And the Patricks just created a lineage. But Art Ross deserves every accolade that you would heap on him as well as either a a coach or a general manager. I mean, he he, he the Bruins finished ten times in first with him as a coach and won three Stanley Cups. So I think the guy knew what he was doing. Yeah. And and when the when the when the Western Hockey League and the, and the PCHL folded, he he went to to Mr. Adams who owned the Bruins. And said, look, I'm telling you right now, you've got the money. You have got to get some of these players. There are so many good players there. And he said, well, who would you, who would you recommend first? He said, Eddie Shore. Eddie Shore is a guy you, you've got to get Eddie Shore. And, and that's how the Bruins signed Eddie Shore. You know, and, and if they don't have Eddie Shore in the lineup, they don't win that Stanley Cup in 29. There's absolutely no way. No way. And, and uh, he was, I mean, had there been a Norris Trophy back then? He he would have rivaled Orr. I'm telling you right now. I mean, he won he won four Hart trophies, Polly. Four. Wow. Bobby Orr won three. Eddie Shore won four. That's MVP of the league. Eddie Shore won four Hart trophies, more than Bobby Orr. Eddie Shore has to be in the conversation as the greatest defenseman of all time. Bobby's number one by far. But to me, Eddie is right there with Doug Harvey as a two and a two way. You want to put Doug Harvey two, then Eddie Shore three, or the other way around. And the only people who don't say that. If, if you're going to get into a discussion about the greatest of all time, then do your freaking homework. 
and, and say, look, I either say you don't have the ability to go back to prior to 1980 or prior to 1970 or prior to the modern expansion or prior to the Second World War, then say that. But don't say in NHL history that Nick Lidstrom is the second greatest defenseman of all time. And even some idiots have him number one. <laughs> Total clueless morons. But if, if, if you want to get into an honest discussion about the greatest of all time, then you have to be able to have some done some research like you would if you were studying for a test in school or university or college and, and, and do some research and understand that b- before the game, you know, before the game became what we know it today, like you were just talking about, there were great players and Eddie Shore deserves to be in that discussion. And how did he get to Boston? Because of Art Ross. That's Crazy. how he became a Boston Bruin who was in that first ever handshake, January 2nd, 1908. Great stuff, buddy. What a trip, man. What a trip. Well, like I said, who knows how the future's going to be, but uh, it'd be just uh, crazy if it wasn't involved in the game. And uh, the way you tied all that stuff in is just, uh, it's insane. I've got the notes here, and there's, there's about seven of the highways that we could jump on right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's, uh, well, we'll, it's, have, you know, we'll just keep rolling these out weekly, and uh, yep. and uh, hopefully we don't have to go as long as we think we might. But uh, whatever, buddy. If you're game, I'm game. And, uh, you know, anybody takes the time to – Snap a cap and listen in. Hopefully we can we can, you know, uh give them enlighten them on a little bit of the history of the great game. Yeah, because I think that's maybe something um, you know, definitely next episode because I want to share because the simple question is, is there enough respect? You know, especially maybe the the younger generation that's watching the game now, is there respect for the the old, you know, how the league originated and how much work it did and you know, just all the stuff that we the the basic genesis of the game, the rules and everything is still in place after all all those years how yep. it was originally created and i think that's just amazing as far as um you know the modernization of the game and the speed and the talent like i said this this is like i said hopefully it's not too long and we're going to be talking about live hockey again real soon but man there's there's a depth of um you know content here that we can kind of rip into and uh to bring it back full circle to where the game is today so uh, i'm excited and looking forward to it uh you know like i said to 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 dive into this a little bit but anyway great stuff so we'll wrap this uh, episode up today thanks so much for listening everybody sticks and taps uh if you're listening tell everybody man we really appreciate it so what we're going to do here we uh, always end with a, a an irish toast and uh, we're also going to throw in some irish music here as well we did this last yeah. week uh prior to st patty's there and we did some Clancy Brothers last week, and we're going to do some Clancy Brothers here today. So, Liam, what's your toast of the show, and what song are we running out with? Yeah, well, um, today I'm, I'm going to toast the fact that uh, for, for anybody, I'm toasting everybody like yourself, Polly, who had a little, cel- little family celebration on the 17th. I'm going to toast the friends that, uh, that I joined with as well. And anybody else who took an opportunity at home or with, uh, with family and, and, of course, Small groups like we did as well to uh, keep the uh, keep the risks down of everything, and and uh, and that's how we uh, that's how we celebrated the seventeenth. So I'm toasting everybody else, and that's who my toast is going to. Are we doing that now, or should I talk about the song first? Well, I'm I'm gonna you know I'm with you there on the toast as well, and I'll just add this, and I'm sure okay. you agree, Liam, as well. Uh, everybody that's on the front lines, the medical staffs, first responders, uh, everybody out there that's going to be. Uh, protecting all of us and and hopefully you know we we all aren't marching into hospitals and doctor's offices hopefully this is going to be contained we all work together but again uh, i can't uh, say enough about everybody because i have a couple of buddies that are doing it right now 
They're in the emergency rooms. Uh, they're on the front lines. And like I said, just hang in there, everybody. Stay positive. And, and here's to those that crew. Sounds good, pal. All right. Now, tell us about this Clancy <sighs> Brothers classic we're about to go out to here on Sticks and Tacks. All right. So this is a song called Johnson's Motor Car. Okay? It's based on a true story. So what happened was, after the Easter Rebellion in 1916, um, there was still a tremendous amount of tension in the country as the provisionals wanted to uh, fight on for a unified Ireland. And there were two divisions that kind of, and it led to a civil war, as you probably well know, Polly. And just just shortly before the treaty, um, as the, um, the Irish Republican Army were were in, in battles, uh, obviously, to try and continue the fight for a unified Ireland. And in one particular case, in the town called Stranlar, the IRA realized that they needed to get to a battle that was 50 miles away, is where they needed to go, but they had no car. So they decided that the best thing to do was to uh, borrow a car. <laughs> so they, they called out the local doctor, whose name was actually Johnston, with a T. Uh, it's been changed to Johnson in the song over the years. But when he showed up, uh, he came to a, um, to a uh, uh, you know, they, uh, they, 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 they blocked the road, and they, they ambushed him. They didn't hurt him. They just took the car. They told him that he needed to attend Mrs. Boyle for an emergency medical, uh, and so he got in his car, and he drove there. And they ambushed him at the Reeland Bridge in Glenfin as he was as he was on his way to Stranlar. They barricaded at the IRA and they got his car. So that's the song. And I want to add this, Polly, that they took that car. They went to conduct their business. Obviously, the treaty came within the next 12 months and the 26 counties in the south were established in the sixth and the north. Now, they, of course, destroyed the car. And hit it because they didn't want to, you know, be caught with it after commandeering it. Last summer, Polly, last summer okay. in County Donegal, June 7th, under an old turf stack that was being dug up by a retired businessman as he Don't was doing some. This is incredible, Don't but this is me. a true story. I'm telling you, he found an old car. Oh, come on. Uh, remnants of an old car and that it's been historically analyzed and they believe it was Johnston's motor car commandeered by the IRA in 1921. That's crazy. Yeah. So this song, so you got to play a good chunk of it here now so people can hear a little bit of it is, uh, is based on that. And the Clancy's are just one of the many groups out of Ireland that have sang it. Some of all have changed a word or two here or there, but the bottom line is, True story, April 1921, Johnston Motor Car, now Johnson in for the song. And uh, give her a rip, buddy. You got it, buddy. All right, folks, as we go, thanks so much for listening to Sticks and Taps. Little Clancy Brothers here, Johnson's Motor Car. Liam, say good day to everybody. G'day. Thanks for listening. All right. Enjoy yourselves, folks. We'll play about a minute of this, and we'll say goodbye. Cheers. Slant to everybody. I met a fellow rebel, and to me he did say, We have orders from our captain to assemble at Dunbar, but how are we to get there without a motor car? 
Oh, Barney, dear, be of good cheer, I'll tell you what we'll do. The specials, they are plentiful, but the IRA are few. We'll send a wire to Johnson to meet us at Stranlar, and we'll give the boys a bloody good ride in Johnson's motor car. When Dr. Johnson heard the news, he soon put on his shoes. He said, this is an urgent case, there is no time to lose. He then put on his castor hat and on his breast a star. You could hear the din all through Lenfin of Johnson's motor car. Ah, but when he got to the railway bridge, the rebels he saw there. Oh, Johnson knew the game was up, but at him they did stare. He said, I have a permit to travel near or far. To hell with your English permits, we want your motor car. What will my loyal brethren think when they hear the news? My car, it has been commandeered by the rebels at the loose. He'll give you fire a seat for it, all signed by Captain Barr. Come on, Ireland, get your freedom, by you'll get your motor car. Well, they put out car in motion and... Go on there, Liam. Cheers, brother. Jump in the car. Cheers, Bolly. <laughs> <laughs>